0: Holy Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's been a minute since we were last together, Um, so let's settle our minds on where Israel has been and where the nation now stands here in Moses' recorded history in Leviticus. Right before our break, we began our study of the book of Leviticus, which opens at the base of Mount Sinai. The commandments had been delivered, the tabernacle was complete, and the glory of the Lord had descended on his dwelling place among his people, essentially making Israel's tabernacle a portable Mount Sinai. And the revelation of his glory was everywhere. The book of Leviticus is the recorded history of Israel's training to be a holy nation. You can think of it as their spiritual boot camp handbook, um, so to speak. And Paula outlined for us in our last lecture in November, God's instructions in chapters 1 through 7 for the nation of Israel concerning the sacrificial system that would be unique to God's people. And that was where we left off before the break. So over the break, you hopefully at least looked over chapters uh, eight through 15. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands. Um, But those those chapters were covered in lesson 10, which was designed as an independent study over the holidays. Um, It's important in the sense that those chapters do set the context for today's lesson 11. So I'm gonna briefly touch on some themes and, and thoughts that were in those chapters. So go ahead and have your Bibles open to Leviticus 8 and follow along with me as I just hit some highlights for us today. So once their spiritual guidelines concerning the sacrificial system were established by God through Moses, Aaron and his sons were be were to be con- consecrated so that Israel's public worship could officially begin. For Israel, worship would mean Entering the presence of the king. They were entering the presence of the king in his holy palace, which was the tabernacle. But now, how could a sinful people rightly bring the prescribed sacrifices into the presence of their holy king? Only through the work of the holy mediators, which in their system of worship were the priests from the tribe of Levi? In chapter 8, we saw Moses carry out the purification rites at the tabernacle and the ordination of Aaron and his sons. The process took seven days, which is the number for completeness. Um, and it, verse 3 of chapter 8 tells us that this ordination occurred, very importantly, in the presence of all the Israelites. This was not a, a private ceremony. Because of his inescapable love, God was giving them tangible proof of his desire for his children to enter his presence and enjoy covenant fellowship with him. You know, on this side of the cross, we can vividly see how the system of priests was pointing Israel to their mediating Messiah who would one day arrive in God's perfect timing. In chapter 9, Moses records for us that on the eighth day, Israel's public worship began. Moses instructs the whole congregation concerning God's required offerings, which are about to be carried out by Aaron and his sons, so that the glory of the Lord would appear in their midst. At the conclusion of the ceremony, verse 24 tells us that fire came out from before the Lord, demonstrating his favor and consuming the burnt offering completely. When the people saw that, they shouted and fell on their faces and worshipped before God. You know, their shouts were a demonstration of their reverent amazement at God's power and glory, and their bended knees were a symbol of their reverent fear for their most holy, omniscient king. But in chapter 10, things took an unfortunate turn, didn't they? Apparently, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, disregarded God's command for holy reverence. Fire had just demonstrated God's favor for the sacrifices rightly offered, but now fire is the symbol of God's displeasure as Aaron's two sons disrespect God the king and bring a random incense offering at a time not authorized into the most holy place where they didn't have the authority to go they are executed by god's fire of judgment they committed treason against their king the takeaway here is that god will bring judgment on those who don't revere him even within the priesthood in chapter 11 verses 8 through 11 is the only time that god speaks directly to aaron alone usually it's with aaron and moses But here he speaks to Aaron alone in the book of Leviticus. And God commands Aaron that the priests are not to drink wine or strong fermented drink before going on duty in the tent of meeting. A drunken priest could easily desecrate God's tabernacle with wrong offerings. A drunken priest could mix up the ritual categories of what was pure, unpure, or holy. And a drunken priest could never rightly teach the Lord's law. To the people of Israel. All this, I wonder, is this a clue on how Nadab and Abihu ended up so badly? Maybe. Um, Chapters 11 through 15 cover God's instruction for dealing with ritual impurity, especially as it relates to his holy dwelling place. Now, in these chapters, the repeated lessons about ritual impurity would have provided pictures for the Israelites of what was expected in the sphere of moral purity. As you read these chapters, you may have picked up on the fact that ritual purity has nothing to do with sinfulness. The thing that these forms of ritual impurity all had in common was that they were actually effects, consequences of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You know, humans and all of creation have been tainted, have been impacted by the introduction of sin into the world. Everything has been tainted. The entire book of Leviticus is a poignant representation of God's rejection of the effects of sin on humanity and all of creation. And it's his intention to one day redeem it all. And it's doing that now. In the New Testament, the humanly impossible demand for ritual purity is set aside in passages like Acts 10 or Acts 15 or Ephesians 2. Namely, these passages all describe the fact that in Christ, God has made all of us who were once considered unclean now clean. Those of us who were once far off have been brought near by the grace of God's good intent. For humanity he wants us to enjoy the fullness of worship and fellowship that's offered within his holy kingdom so all this background takes us to today's lesson today we'll continue to see how Israel's sacrificial system is a foreshadowing that points to Jesus it's Christ's atoning sacrifice that brings believers into the holy presence of the father Jesus Christ came to undo the fall. These chapters, which at times probably seemed really bloody, very legalistic, and maybe demanding in so many ways as you read them, are actually a beautiful demonstration of God's deep desire to buy us back from sin and death. He wanted to pay our ransom. He came to buy us back from captivity, and he bought us back with his own blood, setting us apart as his holy children. So our first division on today's lesson outline says, uh, atoning sacrifice and repentant hearts, and it covers Leviticus chapter 16 through 17. Now, the sacrificial worship system of the Israelites was a daily reminder that their sins and impurities defiled not only themselves but even the Lord's holy sanctuary, the tabernacle. The question was, how can this holy and pure king of the universe ever dwell in the presence of a fallen people without his holiness striking them down in their sin and impurity? How can God's people ever have rest? How can they ever have assurance of his acceptance? The answer is full atonement. Atonement. In chapter 16, we learn that the God of Israel took the initiative to establish a day of national atonement. The term for atonement in Hebrew is Kippur. And um, it's from, from that is, comes the, the term that, for the holiday of the, uh, that the Jewish people still mark today called Yom Kippur. Um, kippur is sometimes used in the Hebrew to mark Purification, to describe purification, sometimes it refers to the act of ransom, paying a ransom for somebody. But those two ideas taken together give us a fuller picture of what the Day of Atonement was meant to accomplish for the nation of Israel and its individual members. Chapter 16 begins with a reference to Aaron's two dead sons who had approached their holy God wrongly. For Aaron to avoid that same fate, He would need to follow God's instructions to the letter. Once a year, Aaron was to enter the most holy place where the Lord God King was enthroned over the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 1 through 10 give an overview of how Aaron was to prepare himself through the rites of purification, the appropriate clothing, and the gathering of the required animal sacrifices. A bull was to be offered for purification for himself, and all the priests, and that really highlights the fact that all the priests needed atonement in the same way that their congregations did. They were flawed and fallible human beings. Lots were cast for two goats to atone for the people. One goat was sacrificed as a purification offering, and the second goat, after the sins were transferred ceremonially, (coughs) ceremonially through the laying on of hands and confession of the sins of the people, that goat was cast out into the wilderness to bear their iniquities away as their scapegoat. It's such a poignant foreshadowing of Jesus, who the prophet Isaiah pointed to in 53, verse 6. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 1629 here in Leviticus uses the plural form of you, emphasizing that the Day of Atonement was meant to be observed as a national event on the 10th day of the seventh month, which occurred sometime between um, harvest. During harvest, it was probably between September and October, depending on the year. Think about how meaningful this annual sacred day would have been for the people of Israel after spending the previous months keeping the sacrificial. The sacrificial laws, bloody offering after bloody offering. Had God accepted them? Had they been forgiven truly of their sins? God graciously, lovingly tells them that on this day of atonement he would give them complete assurance. Verse 30 says, You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Period. Done. And in response, They were to cease completely from every form of work on that day of atonement as a solemn day of rest, humbling themselves as as if they were afflicted, which also probably indicates that they fasted. God wanted their full attention on this day of all days. You know, the sacredness of life and of blood is explored further in chapter 17. Here we witness God speaking to Moses with instructions about the proper handling of sacrifice. We see in verse seven that some of the Israelites were still practicing polytheistic worship of idols that they were immersed in back in Egypt. God will not share his people with another. Sacrifices made to a pagan idol were a sign of unfaithfulness to God. And scripture tells us that no one can serve two masters. The key concept of this chapter is found in verse 11, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life, by the life. The sacrifices made by the Israelites might have felt like something they were doing for God. But he is reminding them here that he is actually providing the sacrifices in the first place. After all, he is the creator of life. They were to respect God's directives on valuing the animal lives that were being sacrificed in their place. In his goodness and grace. The king who requires atonement for sin is the same one who provides the atoning sacrifice that's required. That's a reminder that we can never earn our salvation because we were born steeped in sin. And sin leads to death. That's why Romans 6.23 declares the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That the holy king of Israel, who was so offended by sin, Provided the sacrifice to ransom them was the focal point of the sacrificial system. Yet, all of the rites described in chapters 16 and 17 were utterly powerless, unless they were accompanied by faith of repentant hearts. God is always, always, ladies, after our hearts, the hearts of his people. David wrote in Psalm 51:15. O Lord, open my eyes, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. How much more so for us on this side of the cross. Because of the effects of the fall, a ransom is required to buy us back from the grip of death. And purification is needed to make us righteous before a holy God. And God established among his people, Israel, that blood was the agent to fully cleanse sin and impurity and ransom them from death. In our homework, we covered some beautiful New Testament references to the supremacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. As believers, our day of atonement was carried out on Calvary, the day that God offered up his own son to be crucified in our place. Unlike Aaron, Christ didn't need to make atonement for himself. He was perfect. He was spotless. And he was completely without sin. And for that reason, he was and is our perfect high priest Christ didn't come to make peace with our sin. He came to eradicate it so that we could be clean through his imputed righteousness once and for all. Christ shed his blood to give us life. Our principle and application for division one is this. The ritual purity that God demanded of Israel pointed to their need for moral purity as a nation. And as God's sanctified people, Christ is our perfect high priest. Delivered, he delivered our day of atonement at the cross. Mark 10, 45 reminds us, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, to give his life as a ransom for many. How about you and me? Are we still striving to save ourselves through works or service or good behavior? If so, aren't you so weary, so exhausted from running in circles? You know, self-righteousness is the other side of the coin of unbelief. We have no righteousness in ourselves apart from Jesus. He has to live in our hearts. He has to be the center. So have you experienced the lifting of your burden of sin by Christ's sacrifice of himself? Come into his rest. You've been ransomed. Our second division, Leaving Egypt and Preparing for Canaan, covers Leviticus 18 and 20. That's not a typo. It may seem like it, but these two chapters fit together in a sense that God is putting a finger on harmful practices that they've carried with them from their days in captivity, as well as warning them about the abhorrent practices that exist in Canaan where they're going. So chapter 18 spells out the unlawful acts themselves, the things that were unlawful in the sight of God for his followers. And then in chapter 20, God has Moses tell the people what the penalty for those unlawful acts will be. You know, before we shut down on what might seem unpalatable to our modern ears, remember that God has set his people apart. He set them apart to be sanctified, to be holy in the midst of a fallen world, so that his people might radiate his glory. God clearly states the expectations for his sanctified people at the start of chapter 18. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. When God says that we shall live by these statutes, he is saying that this obedience will bring us enjoyment of life under the Lord's favor and blessing. It's by no means following this pre- these precepts that we are saved, because remember, God redeemed Israel first, and then he gave them the law after he redeemed them. God's law regulates our relationship with Him. It doesn't create it. The Lord very specifically and intentionally gives Moses instructions for the nation, setting specific boundaries that were immutable concerning sexual relations and forbidden practices of worship. 400 years under slavery in Egypt had indeed polluted their familiar perspective among their, their kin and their families as well as their spiritual perspective. It's been said that it took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took God 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Verses 6-18 outline the forbidden sexual relations within family units. And this covers unlawful relations with blood relatives as well as relatives by marriage. The, repeat, the repeated phrase we see in these verses is, to uncover nakedness, and it's the Hebrew idiom for having sex. In scripture, it always refers to illicit sexual relations. People who don't study God's word in context likes, like to say that women aren't held in high esteem, in high regard by God, but in these verses, we see how God has protected the women of Israel from becoming sexual slaves to multiple men within their households. The exception for marrying a sister-in-law was if a man died without having children. His brother was to marry his widowed sister-in-law so that she could bear children, carry on the dead man's lineage, and not live destitute. In addition, God warns the people of illicit worship practices. In verse 21, specifically, the sacrifices to the pagan god Moloch. They were prevalent in Canaan at the time and the surrounding areas. Worship of Moloch involved burning one's own children in a sacrificial fire, which was both committing murder and practicing idolatry, and those were both prohibited by God's holy commandments. God was Israel's father, and they were not to defile his name or break their holy covenant with him. When we studied Genesis, we saw that God's design for marriage was established in the Garden of Eden. How he designed and created our bodies, both male and female, is one of the ways he has revealed himself in creation. And verse 21 here is a commentary on God's design for sexuality. You shall not lie with a man, with a male, as with a woman. It is an abomination. Implied here is that sex between two women is also an improper act on the same basis. It's outside of God's design for male and female counterparts. Man and woman were designed as helpers and created for one another. Now, the biblical definition of marriage is today considered by some antiquated, narrow-minded, And it's even contradicted now by the laws of our land. I don't have answers on the best ways to navigate this in our culture today. Um, But I do know I'm commanded to show love to those who disagree with God's word on this topic. Because Jesus loves me in all my brokenness and sin. And he tells me to love my neighbor as myself. Here's the thing, all people were created in his image, whether they acknowledge God or not. And there is no ranking system for sexual sins. Because of the introduction of sin into the world at the fall in the Garden of Eden, all of sexuality is tainted. Many sexual relationships and marriages suffer under the weight of dysfunction. Here's the thing. Nobody is led into the healing arms of Jesus through hate. No one is going to be swayed to consider the truth of God's unchangeable, immutable word through self-righteous rants or finger-pointing or rejection or judgment. John 1 reminds us that Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth, and so must we. Nobody is beyond redemption that God offers, the redemption that he offers through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. My friend James Forsythe said something recently that resonated so deeply with me. He said, it's not your past sin or what you've done with your body that defines you. It's what Christ did with his body on your behalf that defines you. What a beautiful truth. Verse 23 to the end of chapter 18 deals with other perversions of human sexuality that God forbids. God explains that all forms of perversion defile the land, polluting creation in such an extreme way that God was causing those lands before them, where they were going, to metaphorically vomit their inhabitants out. Jesus, excuse me, God ends by saying So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, flipping over to chapter 20, as I mentioned, it's kind of the bookend of chapter 18. It's the effect to the cause. Like any good parent, God is clearly outlining to his children what the punishment will be if they ignore his commands. Remember, this 40 years in the desert is a sanctification training camp for Israel, comprised of over, at this point, probably close to 3 million people as they're preparing to enter the promised land. In verses 1 through 6, God through Moses outlines the consequences for those who engage in worship of Moloch and consult mediums or wizards. God spells out the specific punishment for dishonoring parents and committing sexual immorality that we've previously discussed. And in verse 27, we see God's pronouncement, his judgment of the mediums and the wizards themselves, those people who are leading others astray. So why all these strict, specific boundaries for Israel? God states his reason very clearly twice in the chapter, in verse 7 through 8, and then again in verse verses 22 through 26. In verse 7, God says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord your God who sanctifies you. Verse 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the people's that you should be mine. They were to do nothing that would defile the name of the God of Israel. They were a people who had been redeemed by a benevolent king, and to break his just and righteous laws for them was treason. It was, in effect, like going back to Egypt, choosing captivity instead of freedom and life. So what does this all mean for us, the side of the cross? Christ came to release us from the bondage that we all suffer as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. God's statutes and commands are our guideposts that keep us from living as captives to sin. You and I, we've been bought at great cost. Scripture affirms God's unchanging, holy nature yet living in this world can warp, can warp our perspective on his good design and creation and his perfect intent for his people. Are there any areas in your life or my life where we've gone back to Egypt, where we're compromising on God's good intent for our life and assimilating to the culture around us If so, will you share with a trusted friend or a Christian counselor your struggles, your hurts? That's a good thing. Our last division, God's call to holiness and radical love, we'll look at Leviticus chapter 19, that in-between chapter between the bookends. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Israel was being prepared to function as a holy society, to stand out among the nations in their adherence to God's commands. In their homes, they were to revere their parents. In the presence of a watching world, they were to honor God by keeping the Sabbath by avoiding idol worship, sacrificing according to God's statutes, and worshiping according to God's laws. God was their one and only, their true king. And the often repeated phrase that you probably saw as you read chapter 19, I am the Lord your God, is a resounding echo of his omnipotence and his holiness. Verse 9 looks forward to Canaan where When they entered the promised land, they would at that time re-harvest there, and their bounty was to be shared with the poor and the sojourner among them. They were not to steal or deal falsely with one another. They were to avoid injustice and not slander or endanger the life of their neighbors. Verses 17-18 through teaches how they are to respond to their fellow Israelites by refusing to hate them by refusing to pursue revenge or bear a grudge. Verses 11 through 18 are really a commentary on how they are to live out the Ten Commandments as the people of God. In verses 19 through 37, we see that God's statutes for holy living were to be followed in all areas of life, in animal husbandry, in protecting women who were slaves from being sexually exploited, and in horticulture, even the details of planting and harvesting fruit trees were regulated by God to improve their yield and to bless his people. Pagan practices were to be put aside. They had no place in God's holy kingdom. The elders among them were to be treated with deep honor and true respect. Strangers and sojourners among them They weren't sent off to refugee camps. They were welcomed in love as part of the community. After all, the Israelites were once sojourners themselves in the land of Egypt. To answer every point of instruction, every tendency for us in our humanity to ask, but why this? Why God? God's answer again and again is I am the Lord. Our good good father calls us to imitate him by obeying his laws and considering all aspects of our lives sacred by his design. Following his commands ensures that the reality of his holiness will permeate all aspects of our lives. It's what being salt and light looks like. It's what selfless radical love looks like. It's how we reflect his glory. It's how we seek the welfare and the peace of the community where we've been called to dwell it's how we live in response to the blessing that god has poured out on us ephesians 1 3 through 8 is the declaration of our inheritance yours and mine as daughters of the king it says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us sisters we have been set apart and set free to serve and love and bring him glory and that leads us to our final principle today God declares us holy because we've been transformed by faith in Christ it's through his sufficient superior sacrifice that we've been cleansed and we're designed to bring him glory do you see yourself that way as instruments of glory do you know that as god's adopted daughter you've been set apart he looks at you and says you are holy in my eyes you are blameless If someone asks you what holiness meant to you, could you describe it? Here's the thing, there's no going back to Egypt for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. His blood shed at the cross brings us into the holy realm of the king of the universe. He grants us assurance of our redemption as we we advance his kingdom. It is done, you are his. What a savior. Dearest Jesus, may we never cease to be amazed and grateful to the depths of our souls that you found us when we were far off, rescued us and brought us home, never to be abandoned, never to be rejected. You lifted us up and dressed us in your righteousness Let us dwell in your glory as we wait. We wait for your return and love others well because you loved us first. Come soon, Lord Jesus. It's in your redeeming name that we pray. Amen.